So what does your foot and ankle do? <laughs> presses the gas pedal from over here. It presses the gas pedal and the brake pedal. I'm all for that. If you were on your toes, you'd realize that the first slide would give you that. So yes, it acts as a shock absorber. We have to be able to place the foot during gait, adapt to the terrain, so it, 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 it essentially flexes, extends, and goes to the side to be able to adapt, and it provides you with a stable base of support for you to be able to use your muscles to move you forward. Simple. Simple. The other part that's simple, the bones. The tibia creates your medial malleolus, your fibula creates your lateral malleolus, and then you got this thing that sits in the middle called the talus, or talus. Talus, talus, potato, potato. And that's it. So what movements, does, are, what movements occur at the, what they call, talocural joint? Simple. Which movements? Dorsiflexion, plantar flexion. Ah, see, I left it open. I got you. I set the hook and I reeled it in. So you were good up until the third one. There are only two movements dorsiflexion and plantar flexion because I've got this thing that looks like this. And I now have something in the middle of it your talus. So what can it do? Can it go? Bonk, 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 no. And it can't go the other way. It can only go this way. So you have dorsiflexion, plantar flexion. Where do inversion and eversion occur? The next joint down, which is the What's the next joint down from the talocrural joint? Underneath the talus is the, yeah, so you have the subtalar under the talus, yes, joint, which allows you to do inversion, eversion. Very important thing to remember. The talocrural joint, or what we know as our ankle joint, dorsiflexes and plantar flexes. So now we got a whole mess of bones. And yes, you'll need to know them. And we're getting a couple of nods in the back from people that will say, oh yes, you need to know them. <laughs> nods and smiles. And where does eversion and inversion occur at? At the subtalar joint. Or what's another name for the subtalar joint? Make one up for me. Talo. Calcaneal, yes, a talocalcaneal joint. If you were to go in and you go, man, Alan had a special name for that. I don't have any earthly clue. If you name it the talocalcaneal joint, guess what? Full marks. Ding. Next question, please. So your bones. You have the talus, which sits on the calcaneus. 
You then move forward to the next row, the navicular, the cuboid, and the cuneiforms, or cuneiforms, depending upon what country you're in, again, which are named medial, intermediate, and lateral. And it's that straightforward. All right, so the navicular is medial and in front of the talus. The cuboid is lateral. All right. Then you go down to the metatarsals, of which not all of them are weight-bearing. Metatarsals, remember that, metatarsals. I've seen people come in to the practical and say that they're going to palpate someone's metacarpals, and I always kind of chuckle. I go, I know where you're going with this, but that's not really where you want to be with this, because your metacarpals are here. Yes, it's an easy thing to mess up. So you got five long bones, of which the first and the fifth bear weight. Second, third, and fourth do not bear weight, or they should not. If you make the big old um, um, callus on your second or third toe, some of you, I'll bet if we took everybody's shoes off, somebody's going to have a callus on their second metatarsal. Yep. All right. So that is a spot. The callus is basically trying to protect the spot that's weight-bearing. So do you shave off a callus? Hmm. Do you shave off a callus? If a callus is there to protect, would you shave it off? One of those things that makes you say. And then you have your phalanges. Uh, before before I go there, obviously, medial to lateral numbering. So big toe is number one. That's right, number one. Big is number one. And then they go from there, and they all have a base and a head. The head would be on which end of the, on the distal end, yes, the base, proximal. The phalanges, you have two on your big toe, three on the lesser toes. An array is simply the metatarsal and the phalange all together, grouped as such. Just another name for that combination of things. So here we go. You got a talus. This is a lousy picture. You have talus and calcaneus. Now, oh, that wasn't quite what I wanted. I won't play with that anymore. Look at these things in groups. Number one clue to learning the foot and ankle. Did that just change? Yeah. My Vulcan skills are getting stronger. It did it again. Apparently, it's on its mind of its own now. So what we're going to do is this. When in doubt, reboot. Well, we won't reboot, but 
Now, you see, while I was away, I was thinking that that wasn't going to change. Did it change? <laughs> see? You don't ever mess with a Jedi. All right, I'm telling you that right now. All right, so we got functional groups. Why would we have functional groups in a class like functional anatomy? Hmm, the things that make you say, hmm. All right, so we got one group, the rear foot. Talus calcaneus, done. That is the first part to make contact with the ground when you walk. Not necessarily the case when you run. But when you walk, you walk heel-toe. So this part makes contact. Then you got the midfoot, which are the navicular, medial, cuboid, lateral. Then you've got the forefoot, the cuneiforms, the metatarsals, the phalanges. Now, I will warn you. I'm going to warn you right now because you're going to read some things and they're going to. I have it like this because this is the way that it is presented oftentimes. I do not look at, I don't understand the foot in that fashion. All right? So the formality of it is that's probably what you're going to read over and over and over. Functionally, since I'm a guy that thinks in terms of function, I like to think of the cuneiforms as being part of the midfoot. I say that because geographically it makes more sense. It just makes more sense. We're not going to get nitpicky about that in terms of, well, is the, is the medial cuneiform part of your midfoot or your forefoot? No. Yeah, it's, you're going to have the same thing in the wrist. Guess what? Here's your wrist. That's basically what you've got. You've got uh, radius and ulna, stacko bones, and then metacarpals. That's why I think that it makes more sense to look at the cuneiforms as part of your midfoot. This is probably the way that you will read it. To me, it makes no sense. I'll, I'll admit that. It makes no sense to me to have it that way. So your midfoot gives you stability and mobility. The arches have to adapt to the ground. The forefoot is the part that allows you to be able to have a lever in which you can toe off. Long bones give you a nice lever. All these joints allow you to be able to adapt. All right? So, don't don't get, don't be scared of all this. These are all the joints we have to worry about, or not, as the case may be. So you have a, a superior tib-fib. We already talked about that at the knee. You have an inferior tib-fib, which is basically to allow you to be able to have a place to put the talus. It moves, not a whole lot, because if this joint moved, what would happen to your ankle? 
It'd be wobbly. It'd be all over the place. I'd have to come up with a new gait pattern to show you in class. That would not be a good thing to have a lot of mobility at this joint. So then you have your talocrural here. You have your subtalar underneath. Great. There's your rear foot. Now, your mid-tarsal or your transverse tarsal is between, is the, remember the line I showed you? Yeah, there you go. Between rear foot and midfoot. Do you have a whole bunch of, of joints in the middle? Yes. Do I care? Not today I don't. And then from there, tarso-metatarsal here. That's where that other line was. And then you have metatarsophalangeal and interphalangeal. Break them into groups. And that's why I created the slide the way I did. So the superior tib fib, fibula and, and tibia, uniaxial, synovial, plane joint allows for gliding to occur. A little bit, not a lot. We're talking about small little movements. The, the fibula can actually move superiorly and inferiorly. Not a lot. And the fibula also doesn't bear weight. So if I was to break my fibula, what's the recovery time? Let's say it's just a nice clean sort of thing. Better or worse than if I break my tibia? Better. A, it's smaller bone, but B, it doesn't bear weight. So more often than not, I can be up moving around as long as the repair process is moving along. I can be up moving around pretty readily. You break your tibia, they're probably going to be a lot more methodical about how they progress you. So if there's a superior tib fib, I'll bet you there's an inferior tib fib, which is attached. I mean, what happens here has got to now happen here. You can't just move one without the other. And it's a syndesmosis, the Greek god of fibrous joints, syndesmosis. Actually, syndesmosis must be the goddess of, it just sounds more. So the goddess of fibrous joints doesn't have a capsule, held together by an interosseous membrane, obviously stabilizes the ankle joint because you got a bone wedged between. So if it was wobbly, Talus is all over the place, and we don't want that. So here you go. Patella, tibia, fibula, femur. Lousy picture. Rear foot articulations. You have, as I said before, talocrural and subtalar. So you got the talus wedged in here in what they call a, a mortise. This is your talocrural joint. This is your subtalar joint. So the talus is not really a very big bone as such, and it's wedged in there. All right? If you fracture your talus, 
Are you happy or not? Well, I mean, if I fracture anything, I'm not happy. But relatively speaking, do you like to see somebody with a fractured talus in the big grand scheme of things? No. Why? Doesn't have a good blood supply. There's nothing supplying that air. Well, it has a supply, just not a very good one. And it's got no place to go. And now if you had to repair it, what would happen? Well, you darn well better make sure that everything lines up correctly again, otherwise that joint is a mess. So it's very easy to create a problem there. It's a synovial joint, it's a hinge joint. It moves one way, flexion extension, or dorsiflexion plantar flexion. Dorsiflexion 20 degrees, plantar flexion 30 to 50 degrees. I left that as a pretty broad range. <coughs> what do your cards say? 50? Is it 50? The shape of the talus defines how this joint works. So the talus is actually shaped broader, let me make sure I say this right, broader anteriorly than posteriorly. Shaped a bit like a wedge. Why? Well, when I dorsiflex, what happens? The wider side comes into the joint more, which wedges it together. That's a good thing. Provides for stability. Stability, when my foot is in this position, is a good thing. Because what's happening when I'm in this position? I'm starting weight bearing. I want a stable place. As soon as I go into plantar flexion, what happens? I get the narrower part of the bone. What happens with my ankle joint or my talocural joint? It's got a little more mobility that way. That would be a good thing because now I have a lever to be able to adapt and move forward. All of these things are designed with function in mind. All of these things are designed with function in mind. Your subtalar joint allows your foot to do this. Another synovial joint, it allows you to absorb shock. So that meaning, it allows you to adapt to positions. Because if the foot can adapt to positions, it pr essentially does what we call pronation and supination. The arch flattens, the arch gets bigger. So the foot is very dynamic. Pronation will be a combination of movements. So eversion, dorsiflexion, and abduction. All right, so when I, I can't, I will, pardon me, but I'm going to stand on this table. I'm not that tall. I always have to remind myself I'm not that tall. All right, and I'm on the table with my shoes. Don't kill me, buddy. <laughs> I'm like the rule breaker. It's like, you should, as you would probably be surprised to understand. Pronation. So when I do this, what is my foot doing? It's everting up, it's abducting, so my toes are now pointing away from the midline. Here. I feel like that platform diver. I, I'm, I'm like two feet up. How do they go 30 feet up on their toes and then go onto their hands and do a handstand and stand, like hold it for whatever, two seconds, five seconds? And then, yeah, and I can't stand on this. Abducted, everted, and dorsiflexed. Supination. 
inverted, adducted, and plantar flexed. They go together. Another way that you, I always remember pronation because of a foot being pronated, which is, wasn't that nice? That was a, that was my two foot platform dive into a bucket of water. Pronated foot. What does a pronated foot look like when you get out of the pool? They're the, the, the pronated foot is the one that looks like the big old flipper when you get out of the pool and make the prints. A supinated foot is one that's got more of an arch. Surely somebody in here has been in a pool sometime recently, probably not in the last three weeks, but sometime recently. Okay, so if my foot is pronated, it's done this. It's flattened out. So I make a big footprint. I remember pronated and I, again, supination is the opposite. Remember one. The nice thing about it is if I, pronating my foot's easy to do. So what have I just done? Easy. Remember that one. Well, remember one of them, whichever one is easier. Joint is obviously, there's some stability built into the joint medially and laterally. Medially you have what they call the deltoid ligament. Laterally you have your calcaneofibular and your talofibular ligaments. The deltoid ligament is broad. You don't, these components are not going to be critical. These just tell you where it's attached. But when you look at it in a picture, it's a big broad mass of tissue. You don't tend to sprain your deltoid ligament. Does not happen. If you see somebody that has sprained their deltoid ligament, take a picture of it and send it to me. Because you won't see one. Probably. It's like, right, we're going to go out and explore, and we found the legendary deltoid ligament sprain. Danger, danger. It's like that, because what happens? You don't sprain the ligament, you pull it off the bone. It's so strong that if you stress it or you overstress it, it'll pull a piece of the bone away before it'll break. That's why I say, if you actually see one, interesting that it doesn't, if it doesn't have a piece of bone with it. Now, laterally, okay, there's your deltoid ligament. <laughs> this guy, of course, yeah, let, like you're going to see one of these. It's a broad expanse of ligament. It can tear. It just doesn't tend to, to do so as much as a lateral. Or what we call the lateral collateral ligaments. So it connects the lateral malleolus instead of the medial. It collects, connects the lateral malleolus to the talus and to the calcaneus. So you have an anterior talofibular, a posterior talofibular, so two bands this way, and then the calcaneofibular. So you got these three bands laterally. Do you sprain those? Yeah. Can you blow them out? Yes. Definitely. So whereas a deltoid ligament would limit my eversion, 
the lateral collateral ligaments limit my inversion. It just so happens that it's very easy to invert your ankle. Yes? How many of you have sprained your ankle? Yep, if you've played sports, you've probably done it. So if you've sprained your ankle, chances are I'd go to Las Vegas and bet on lateral collateral. And I'd bet on anterior talofibular to win. Because it would be the first of the three. Because you're plantar flexed and you're inverted. So the anterior part is stressed first. The medial part, or excuse me, the lateral part is stressed second. You're probably not going to see very many posterior talofibular ligament sprains. Because in order to get to the point where I'm inverted and plantar flex, chances are I'm probably pushing bone against bone. So it's probably not going to happen as much. And there it is. Or there they are. So you've got one, two, and three. And there's an owie foot and an owie ankle. All right, at the midfoot we stop. So what do we have left for Wednesday? We have the articulations, the remaining articulations, which are midfoot and forefoot. And then we have muscles. I will tell you right now as you're studying, and arches. We have arches to talk about as well. There are three arches, they, abs they absorb impact and allow the body to adapt to its terrain. Great, next, All right, so you'll know them geographically. Muscles are by groups, groups are by innervation. You've heard that three or four times for me, I'll say it again. So you have an anterior group, a lateral group, and two posterior groups. And I'll bet, I'll bet that those groups are innervated similarly. And the thing that I was thinking about this morning when I was coming in is that if you think about the hip, we talked about things move in flexion and extension and all the other stuff moves off of that to stabilize. If you look at the ankle, it's the same thing. You plantar flex and dorsiflex and then the accessory movements that those muscles create are probably inversion, eversion. So you'll have plantar flexors and inverters together, plantar flexors and everters. You'll have dorsiflexors and inverters, dorsiflexors and everters. But remember, there are dorsiflexors and plantar flexors almost first and foremost, and then whichever ones are around that. So if you use those two things, nerve supply and function of at the ankle, you'll be able to get those groups down easily, very easily. The foot you may be more concerned about, but I think I got a scoop on that one too.